Okay, one uh, feature, I think, of the world in which we live, 21st century Dundee, one feature of the modern world is how incredibly quickly the values of the society in which we live are shifting and changing and evolving. That's a feature of modern life, isn't it? How quickly values and views are moving. So you and I, what happens is we blink and a value that was commonly held maybe five years ago, we blink and suddenly uh, that's viewed as being bigoted. Isn't that right? Or there was a view that was commonly espoused last week and you blink, and then this week, suddenly that view is, is seen by society as being gross and immoral. Things change, things evolve, things move very quickly. It's actually quite difficult for us sometimes to keep up with what is going on in society. Now, that's true, I think. But in amongst all of that, one seemingly immovable object is our society's preoccupation with love. So everything else might change, everything moves, all these things move, but our society is still fixed on love. No matter what changes, Hollywood is still going to find a ready market for a really good love story, isn't it? No matter what else changes, no matter what views and values shift in our society, country and western singers are still going to sing about love and love that has been spurned. Well, in a sense, I think the same is true in the life of God's church. It's true, isn't it, that at St. Peter's and in the modern church, we talk an awful lot about love. But as we do that, I do wonder whether a particular emphasis is being missed. Stick with me. See, think about it. When we speak about love in the life of St. Peter's, who often is in view when we talk about love? When we sit, we speak, we preach about love, who's, who's often in view? Who are we thinking about? Very often, we are thinking about loving each other. We talk a lot about that, don't we? Quite rightly, biblically, we talk about the care, the unity that needs to be amongst us. What else do we talk about? Who else do we talk about? We talk about loving the lost, don't we? Rightly, properly, biblically, I think that's true. Hang on, no. Could it be argued that the contemporary church that we need to recapture a focus on, quite simply, loving Jesus. Isn't that something we need to recapture? We talk, you and I, an awful lot about following Jesus. We talk about faith in Jesus. It's all right. It's true. It's right. We need it. Trusting in Jesus. But do we not need to recapture a stress, a focus on our Lord's desire that you and I really genuinely desire him. The fact that the people of God, the Christian church, that we should today be longing for Jesus, like yearning for Jesus this morning, that our hearts should be just welling up as we come in here thinking of Jesus, thinking about the privilege of, of even worshiping our Lord. Well, this morning we return after a little break of a few weeks, uh, we return uh, to Luke's gospel, and we return to this uh, quite long line of people that the Lord Jesus Christ, in this section of Luke's gospel, is helping. I wonder if you can remember some of the people in this long line that Jesus has been helping. Can you remember? So Jesus has, what has he done? He's healed the centurion's servant, yes? 
What's he done? He's raised the woman's son. Do we remember? He has assured John the Baptist last time of John the Baptist and his doubt. And this morning what happens in this long line of Jesus acting to help people, we see him interact with what your Bible calls a sinful woman. Let's not make a mistake. It's an easy mistake to make. This is not the same as the later account of Jesus being anointed for burial. Are we thinking that? We all got that? So this is not the same account that's recorded in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, John's gospel. John, John identifies that later account as Mary from Bethany. This is, this is not the same account. This is unique to Luke's gospel. But as we look at this situation with this sinful woman, what are we going to find? Let me tell you, I think this morning the Holy Spirit through God's Word will teach you and, and me a lot about love, about loving. We'll be taught this morning about loving loving the Lord Jesus Christ, our, our Lord and Savior. So if you've got a Bible, um, if you would, turn with me. It's good to have it open. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 7 from, from verse 36. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, uh, there are some Bibles on the table. We did notice as we came into the church that there were Bibles on the table and eggs. Somebody suggested that that was just in case the sermon's awful. <laughs> so I've brought in veg and some eggs. I don't think, I'm hoping that's not what it's going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there, there are Bibles there, or we will try and project some of the verses that we focus in on on the screens if that works. Great. Okay, let's, let's turn to this, this, this portion of Scripture, sinful woman forgiven. The first, the first aspect, we're showing a few things. The first thing we're showing, though, in this woman is an example of love for Jesus. That's what's set out before you this morning, an example of love for Jesus. Um, as I've mentioned before, I think, to you, certainly at the prayer meeting, it, now and again, the neighborhood where Catherine and I live, so just down the Perth Road, um, now and again, that neighborhood holds sort of community events. They're big on community events. We've got a little park behind the house, and certain times of the year, um, the community will organize little events. These will, these will be times where um, the doors are open, you know, and you can, you know, people are in and out each other's homes. You get the idea. Maybe you've got something similar, maybe you don't. Maybe it sounds awful to you. Uh, but communal events, community events. Now, as you open the Bible here, I think it's very important, if we're going to understand this portion of Scripture, that we appreciate that that is actually what we are face-to-face -face with here. So although the events we're dealing with take place at a meal, isn't that right? It's a meal at the Pharisee's house. You can't be thinking of that as just some private, behind-closed-doors type affair. So these sorts of meals in the first-century world, so with a public figure like Jesus, these sorts of meals were very often communal events. They were community events. Okay, now I think you can ever so quickly imagine what that would have been like. So there would have been an interior courtyard, most likely in the Pharisees' house. Pharisees were generally quite wealthy. So an interior courtyard. Can you picture it? And you've got the Pharisee and his guest, and they're in the center, and they've got the food out before them for this meal. 
but the doors would be open to the courtyard. And there was this expectation that people from the community, certain people would be allowed, they'd be welcome, they'd be allowed to come along. And they would take their place uh, around the outside of the courtyard. And they would be allowed the expectation, you can listen on. You can observe, and maybe you can even ask, you know, a question or two that you might have. Does everybody follow you with me? It's a community feel. There's a community event here. But if some from the community were welcome, unexpected here, one person that is certainly not welcome or expected is who? Is this woman? that we're introduced to at this point. Did you notice it in the text? It's very subtle, isn't it? But the woman comes in and Luke has this word. Do you notice the word? He has, behold. The woman comes in, she's, she's unexpected. She, she is, in a sense, unwelcome. Now, I, th- I wonder, if perhaps you've heard this before, but see, when it comes to this woman, uh, especially in recent times, uh, people love to take her and make two and two equal five very quickly with this woman and uh, some people certainly in recent times like to identify her as being Mary Magdalene you heard that uh, they, they like to do that despite as far as I can see there being absolutely nothing in God's word nothing in scripture to 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 draw that conclusion at all okay so where that is I'm going to say wrong a, a wrong conclusion unjustified What is emphasized in God's word is the really sinful, wicked, depraved life that this woman has been living up to now. Did you pick up on that? I think you did, even if you just glanced down at the the text. Did you notice that this woman is called a sinner, and she's called a sinner three times in the text? I think we, we already get the picture. And although Luke, the author, I think is just what is he? Is he kind? I think he's maybe certainly restrained, although that's the case. Do you see by that expression in verse 37 that she was a woman of the city? Although he's a bit restrained about it, do you see the conclusion that we're supposed to draw perhaps about her occupation? How can I put this delicately? I think we're supposed to take from the text that this lady here was perhaps at least a lady of the night. Now, what did, wait, what did we call this first point, this first heading? What did we say? This lady here, this woman, is an example of love, an example for us of love for Jesus Christ. And perhaps that is something that is absolutely necessary uh, for you and for me this morning at St. Peter's. I wonder if that's true. So I'll ask you, friend, are you in here as someone who's a professing Christian and someone who's, someone who's trusting Jesus, following Jesus, but as you sit here in church this morning, do you recognize that there is something of a genuine coldness in your heart towards your Lord and Savior? So you're professing faith, you, you trusted in, in Jesus, you are born again, but you sit there and you're like, yeah, there's a lack of love in here for, for, for my Savior and for, for my Lord. If that's, if that's you and if that's me, then don't we need to, to look at what this, how this woman acts and what she does and her love for Jesus? I, I just want to point you to three things about her love, her affection 
for him, three things. One, consider the intensity of, of her love for Jesus. Would you do this with me? Would you look at verse 38? Tony, if you could bring that up. Here's verse 38. Now, what, question is, what does she do? What do you see? What is she doing here? I've, I've been a Christian a long time now. I've read this portion of Scripture quite a number of times, and it's only this week that this word jumped to the text and sort of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. What is she doing? I mean, she's doing a lot. She's crying her eyes out, isn't she? And she's weeping, and it's emphasized. And uh, the, the force of this verb is that she's not just crying. She continues to cry, and she's crying and crying. And I think it's a fair conclusion to draw. Now, there's perhaps speculation, but I think it's a fair conclusion to suggest that she has perhaps encountered Jesus previously. I think most of the commentators, most of the authors would agree with that. Some of them go to great extremes, like uh, J.C. Ryle. You know him? So Ryle, uh, he, 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 he loves that idea that she's encountered Jesus previously. And, and he tries to map out the chronology. And he tries to work out from the Galilean ministry, like, when, what sermon did she hear? Like, where did she encounter Jesus previously? And he goes to Matthew 11, and, and maybe that's going a bit too far. But I think it's fair enough to conclude that perhaps she's, she's heard Jesus before, and she's heard the good news, and she's, she's responded to the good news. And what's happened here? She's also, he's going to be in town. You know, and she's, he's going to be there. He's going to be at this Pharisee's house. So what has she done? Man, she's summoned up all the courage in the world, hasn't she? Like what a brave and bold thing. And she's gone and she's gone into this courtyard and she's approached and she's stood behind Jesus. But what can't she do? She cannot contain herself. And she just, she maybe tried to, but she cannot hold it in. And she cries, man, she weeps. Doesn't she all come? Why is she crying, do you think? Why? Yeah, because of her sin. And she thinks about her life and she thinks about all she's done and seen and thought and spoken. But isn't it more, Christian friends? Why does she cry? She cries because of him. He's there. This one who has accepted her. This one who has loved her. He's there, this one who has shown her abundant mercy. She weeps, it comes out, she cries. Isn't there an intensity, perhaps, that we lack? The second thing, though, about it is that there's also a great uh, humility in this love. I'm sure that we're all, from the youngest in the room to the oldest, we can probably imagine the postures and positions that Jesus and the Pharisee adopted for this meal. We know about this. Can I, can I say, uh, how did you feel when you were in Sunday school all those years ago or in church when you heard about how they positioned themselves to eat in the first century world? What did you think about that? Uh, hopefully it's not just me that thought, that sounds incredibly uncomfortable. Chairs, tables are great invention, aren't they? But you can see the, the positions, the postures. Now, Jesus, most likely, is lying down. 
and he's most likely lying on his left elbow, and the food's there for him to, to eat, you know, with his right hand, and his, his legs are, we know this, don't we? His legs are stretched out, his, his feet are, are stretched out, and wait a minute, what is she doing? Yeah, she's standing, she's standing behind him, but do you notice she's brought this alabaster jar full of expensive perfume, and she begins to clean and anoint Jesus, but my question to you, for you to notice in the text is, where does she do that? The perfume oil, this would be used to anoint what? Everywhere in scripture, anoint the head. But do you notice what she does here? She, she is wiping his feet with her tears. And this oil is used where? It's used on his feet. What do we know about that as Christians? We know that that, dealing with feet, that was a work for the slave. That there, that was a work for the lowest. That was, that was a servant's work. Do you see? It doesn't matter. This is Jesus. There is this humility here from her with her Lord. And if there's intensity, and if there's humility, which there is, there's also, ah, yes, there is an intimacy, an intimacy. And so let's get to the detail that is so often focused on here in this text. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. How does she dry his feet? Does she use a, a, like a towel as we will use in baptism? Does she use a tea cloth? Does she use a napkin? You know the answer. She unbinds her I think we as the Christian church, we know something about that, don't we? We know that in the first century world, that was seen as being something, I was going to say scandalous. Is that enough? Is that strong enough? Unbinding your, your, your hair for a woman, that was something really was viewed as being indecent. Something really regarded as being crude. And I read this, and it was difficult to get my head around, but it's true, I checked on it, that in the later Jewish scriptures, in the Talmud, the Jewish law, Jewish law, later on, um, the, the Pharisees and rabbis wrote that if a woman, a wife, undid her hair and let her hair flow down in the presence of another man, that gave, in later Jewish law, that gave the husband the grounds and the basis to divorce his wife. As horrible as that sounds, doesn't it give us an, an impression of how scandalous and indecent this was that she unbound her hair to, to dry Jesus' feet? Yet, look at her. She doesn't care. <laughs> and I love that. Don't you love that? Like she doesn't, she doesn't care about social conventions. She does not care what these other people think. This is Jesus. This is her Lord. This is her Savior, the one who showed mercy to her. It's, it's right, it's fitting to be so open and close with him. You put all of the pieces together, don't you? Stand back and marvel at her. What displays of love for her Lord. Now, um, after my uh, time uh, in as a minister in multicultural London, um, I'm pretty convinced that some sections of the Bible are more difficult than others, depending upon what parts of the world that we're from. Okay, that's true. Take it from me. Like, depending, like some portions of Scripture are more difficult for us to get our heads around, depending on like your cultural sensitivities and what part of the world that you're from, we're happy with some portions of scripture that people in South America would struggle with and vice versa. And, and look, maybe that is exactly what we need to think through just now. 
Maybe that's true for St. Peter's with this woman, do you think? I mean, you look around, and what is true in the main of this church in Dundee? In the main were Brits. So in the main, not exclusively, but in the main were Brits. What does that mean? That means we are famous, take it from me, famous throughout the world for our reserve, you know? Scottish men are not renowned for being open with our emotions. It's just not the way it is. And yet, what do you find? What has God brought us to this morning? Here we find a section of scripture where we see Jesus clearly welcoming and wanting like open, sincere displays of affection and love. And I need to ask you, do you hear that in your own life? Jesus Christ does not just want your spiritual habits. He wants that. It's not all he wants. Jesus of Nazareth, Christian, he wants your heart. Do you hear it? So Jesus of Nazareth, he's, he doesn't just want your uh, what attendance at church. Now, Jesus wants that, commands it. He doesn't just want that. He wants your affection. He does. He doesn't just want your busyness. He doesn't want just your labors. He does want your love. And so should we not, must we not, seek to follow after this sinful woman in Luke chapter 7? And uh, Riken, the minister, so helpful here as he suggests application. Listen to this. Number one, he says, can we not, on the back of this, can we not in worship actually seek to sing in love to Jesus? To sing, you know, to sing with gusto, fixing our hearts on Jesus Christ. That's one. Two, he says, can we not in prayer start to tell Jesus how much we love him? Should we not do that more? Should you not do that more? We go straight to what we need. Can we not pause? Can we not tell Jesus what he means to us? Third, can we not pour something out? Not oil, not maybe expensive perfume, but our whole lives in, in humble service to Jesus Christ. For who is he? What has he done? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like, saved a wretch like this woman. He saved a wretch like this woman. He saved a wretch like you. He saved a wretch like me. Now, we can quote uh, Amazing Grace, can't we? Uh, I've just done that. But uh, this week in sermon preparation, it was a different line uh, from John Newton, uh, the, the author, the man who penned Amazing Grace. It was a different line that he wrote that really struck me. Uh, and I thought I would uh, bring it to you. Uh, I'm kind of naive in a lot of ways. And I always think about hymn writers from a bygone era as just like cruising around on clouds. You know, they must have it really easy uh, to write such beautiful, flowing, poetical verse about Jesus. Not a bit of it. I mean, these men and women, they struggle too. John Newton writes about his shocking lack of love for Jesus. So you heard that, right? The, the author of Amazing Grace writes here about his shocking lack of love for Jesus. Now, listen to what he says. It's really simple, but listen to John Newton, of all people. He says, oh, so much forgiven, yet so little, little love, so many mercies, but so few returns. 
And again, maybe at St. Peter's this morning, it may be, Christian friend, that you stand right with John Newton. And as you're here just now this morning, you long to love Jesus more. Well, if that's true, then what we find next is absolutely critical. Because the second thing that we're shown here is where this love comes from. Maybe you're wondering this about this woman. We're shown where, we're shown the origins, the source of this intense love for Jesus. That could not be more important for us. Now, as we turn from this woman uh, to consider Simon, this Pharisee, again, I kind of want to just ask you what your thoughts are. What is your opinion of this Pharisee that's hosting this meal? What were your initial thoughts of this Pharisee of Simon? Isn't how he responds to all that's happening there with this woman, isn't it quite shocking or quite striking to you? Think about the stuff that he's just seen. This woman, this poor woman, like crying in his midst. How does he respond? Like, not only is there this real contempt for Jesus. Did you get that? Simon the Pharisee says, you know, if, if he were really a prophet. He wouldn't be allowing this to happen. There's contempt for Jesus. I think that's disgusting. But is it not even more disgusting to see how he treats the woman in question? Do you notice what he does? So Simon calls this woman a sinner. And then he says, and this is a horrible phrase, isn't it? To speak about someone, he says, a woman like this, a woman like this. Don't you agree that there's a nastiness? There's certainly a coldness. There's a self-righteousness, I think, in Simon. So, so how is it that our Lord deals with him, this man? Well, what I want you to pick up on here are the steps that Jesus takes to show you, Christian friend, to show you, but the steps that Jesus takes to show Simon where a sincere, intense love for Jesus comes from. The steps that Jesus takes to show us where that love comes from. Make sure you, you get these. First, Jesus teaches Simon by way of parable. Let's, let's look at this parable. Can we put it up in uh, verse 41, verse 42? Maybe you can have a wee look at this parable. Um, you're, you're very seldom are you given a dare by your minister from the front, but I dare you to try to do this parable with your uh, bank or with your building society in the coming days. Have a look at the parable. Do you see what is it? So you've got Jesus is teaching Simon. He's teaching us. And he says to Simon, he's so cold. He says, Simon, look, two people in debt. One owes loads, one loads less. Like they go to a money lender and they say to the money lender, put their hands up and just say, we can't, you know, we can't, we can't pay. Try it with a nationwide. We, we, you know, try with HSBC. Can't pay. What happens? Now, you are supposed to be amazed by the gospel. Look what happens. The money lender immediately cancels both debts. And then what does Jesus do? Now, Jesus turns this into a question for, for Simon, doesn't he? Come on, everyone, look at the question. Like he's, he says to Simon, Simon, okay, which one of these two people is going to, now the, the crucial thing, is going to love more? Like, is it going to be the person who had a huge debt? Are they going to love more? Or is it the person with a smaller debt? And how does Simon respond? Like, he, he's grudging, I think. Do you notice he says that? He says, I suppose 
There's a, there's a grudgingness here, but he answers correctly. Who's going to love more? The one who's got a bigger, greater debt. So that's the first step. Then, then there's the second step that Jesus teaches. He teaches now by object lesson. Let's look at verse 44. So he, he, he teaches by parable, but then there's an object lesson. Look what he does. Jesus now points Simon to the woman. Now, with respect, he uses the woman as an object lesson and contrasts Simon's behavior with hers. See, I think we all know that uh, each country, each culture in the world, and certainly each culture in Europe, they have different customs, don't they, for how they would welcome people, a visitor, into their home. So if you go around Europe, if you go right around the world, there's going to be lots of different customs. The doorbell goes, or there's a knock on the door, and it's a visitor, and they're coming, let's say they're coming for a meal. Every, and there's lots of different customs for how that person is going to be received. What will we do in Scotland? It's always raining, and it's always cold. So what do we do? You've got a visitor come to the door. You say, can I take your jacket? You look soaked. You know, can I take your brolly? You can put it over there. Would you like a cup of tea? to warm yourselves up, right? Customs, now that was the case. In the first century world, they had their customs. What we have to appreciate from this story is that it looks like Simon has ignored all of these customs with Jesus. Do you see it? And so Jesus here, he, he points Simon to the woman and he says, look Simon, look what you've done. Look where you have not even greeted me. This woman has done, she's not stopped doing that. Well, you've not given me water to wash. This woman has done so much more. And it's there that Jesus gets to the third step and the real point. And he reveals to Simon the crux of the matter. And you've heard me say this before in sermons. I'm going to say it again. If you get nothing else this morning at St. Peter's, get the crux of the matter from Jesus. Now listen to the next phrase. What does Jesus reveal? He shows Simon here that a great love, a burning love for Jesus, an intense love for Jesus, it will only flow from a great sense of sin forgiven. And I'm so desperate for you to get it, I'll repeat it. A great love for Jesus, it will only flow from a great sense of sin forgiven. Can you see that? Can you? Simon's cold. Simon's unloving. Why? Because he knows nothing of his sin being forgiven. And what about the woman? She can love with such depth and such intensity. Why? Because she knows at least something of the magnitude of what's happened and the immensity of her debt, this prostitute's debt, having been cancelled, having been paid. Now, what we could do, I suppose, is we could think about the theology here. You know, maybe if we had more time. Our Roman Catholic, uh, what we call them, our Roman Catholic friends, they would very much disagree with us on this portion of Scripture. This is a, a point of divergence from the Roman Catholic Church and the Church in Rome. So the Roman Catholic Church would look at this portion of Scripture, and I would say that they would misread it, and they would suggest that what we have here is proof uh, for the error, they would say, of the Protestant Reformed doctrine of sola fide, by faith alone. Now, can everyone see that? So the Roman Catholic Church would say that what we have with this woman is proof that for salvation, yes, you've got to believe in Jesus and his work, 
But also, if you're going to be saved, there needs to be this. There needs to be love. There needs to be Christ and works. And we would say what? I think we would say, first of all, look at verse 50. And what does Jesus say? He says to the woman, your faith saved you. You say, oh, it's faith. Yeah, we'd say that. But second of all, we would think, wouldn't we, about the order in the parable. What happens in Jesus' parable? The moneylender cancels the debt, doesn't he? And what is this love? This love is a response to that. Do you see? This love that we have in here, this is not the basis, the grounds for salvation. This love is a response of gratitude, of thankfulness to, to Christ. But let me again bring this to you. I wonder, I'll ask you again, third time. Are you with me? Are we a people this morning longing to love Jesus more? Is that us? And are we now a people who are seeing that the key to that is a sense of our forgiveness? That's what Jesus makes clear. Well, if so, I want to give you three places to look this week in application. Three places, really briefly. Number one, I would urge you, Christian friend, you want to love Jesus more? This week, you look with some honesty at your sin. I wonder if we have given up on doing that as we should. I'd suggest maybe at the end of each evening, you pause before you come to God in prayer and you look with some honesty at your life even that day. Look at the way that you've spoken about others, your thoughts, your actions, your activity, what we failed to do. What will happen there? If we recover the practice of daily repentance, we will feel something of the weight of our filth and the ugliness of our sin. That's number one. Look again at your sin. Number two, this week, I urge you, more than that, I urge you to look again to your God so hear it, turn over a new leaf. If you've not been reading scripture this week, open your Bible, study, study God's self-revelation. And what will happen is you encounter something of the holiness, the, and in a sense, intimidating holiness of God. What's going to happen? You are going to be undone. You're going to be exposed. You're going to feel more of your unholiness. And then the third thing, now this is the most important thing. Look at your sin, look at your God. Third, you must, Christian friend, this week, look to Calvary. Because as you feel all your, your, the, the, the ugliness, the filth of your sin, and then you turn to Golgotha, what are you going to remember? Listen to Paul in Colossians 2. You will remember that God for you, he has canceled the record of debt that stood against you. God, the money lender, he has canceled your debt. And how, what does Paul say? By nailing your debt to the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't it beautiful? Surely, as we sense our sin, but we remember our forgiveness, you and I will well up this week. We will be filled to the brim with what? With love, love for Jesus Christ. So we see an example from this woman. We see the source. We're going to love like this. We need to see and feel that we are a people forgiven. And then very briefly, lastly, we see a display of love from Jesus. Like so often, especially if you've been present in this sermon series, you will recognize that there's a, there's a way that Luke writes 
And you will notice that when it comes to an end of a section, very often Luke changes things and there's a little change of direction towards the end of these accounts. And that happens here. I wonder, did you pick up on it? Because it's, it's unusual. So up until this point in the story and the account, Jesus has been interacting with Simon. So the woman has been busy, hasn't she? She's done a lot, but Jesus has been speaking to and dealing with Simon. Now look how it ends. Can we bring up verse 48? Now we're closing with us in just a word. Look what Jesus does. Right at the end, he, he turns now and engages the woman. And he hasn't done this up until now. Right at the end, what does he say to her? Oh, he says to her, he looks at her. He looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Honestly, all week. Why? Because like, you can see, can you, that in a sense, there's no need for that. Can you see that like, in a sense, the story's complete? Like Jesus has already made clear in conversation, open public conversation with the Pharisee, he's already made clear where this woman stands. You know, he's made it clear where she stands. She's, she's, why is it that Jesus turns to her and actually says this, these words to her? You could say like part of it is to, to make clear or to point to his identity. And I think you would be right with that. Can you remember the, the lowering of the paralyzed man? Do you remember Jesus' declaration about forgiveness? What did that do? That prompted the people, the onlookers, to ask, wait a minute, who is this who even can declare forgiveness of sins? And I think that, that's clearly happening here. So part of it, Jesus is pointing to his authority, the authority that he has as the very son of God. Yeah, that's true. There's something else. And it's beautiful. You see here surely how kind Jesus is. Do you? By turning to this woman, like how, how gentle he is by turning and speaking to her, don't you? Like consider the woman's situation. What we said, most likely lady of the night. Like a life, a horrible life, but a life of sin. Outrageous, constant sin. And then what's happened to her? She's encountered this one. And what is this? A redemption, a forgiveness. Can you see at least what might go through her head? What might go through her head is, is this real? Is this really real? I mean, my life, the way that I've lived, forgiveness, mercy, is this not too good to be true? Do you see why Jesus turns to her? What's it for? He turns to her, looks at her, speaks to her, all for her assurance. All that she would know is, is true. All for her comfort. All for her confidence. And I, I honestly hope, I've prayed all week that you would recognize, Christian friend, that is what Jesus is doing right now for you. Like you, you and I, like we, we, we're here and we're feeling in a situation like this, we feel our sin, don't we, and our failings and our wickedness and like, oh Lord, I, I'm prone to wander. I feel it, right? You're with me in this? And then sometimes the doubt comes in and says, oh, the way I'm living and my lack of spiritual disciplines and these people knew, am I, am I really a Christian? And then, do you see what's happening? Like if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in him, it is so simple and it's beautiful, but just be quiet with me for a second. 
What do you hear? What's happening in this portion of Scripture? Right now here, in the gospel, Jesus looks at you. And do you hear him? What does he say? You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But what does he say? Oh, by God's grace. He says to you, Christian friend, it's true. And it's real. Your sins, they are forgiven. They have been nailed to a cross. You're dead. It has been cancelled by a gracious God. What mystery, right? What joy for us. And I think here in this portion of scripture, you and I are given all the reason in the world just now to go to Jesus and to go to him in love.